Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Session 2 of the Heritage Foundation's 2020 Anti-Poverty Forum. We're delighted to have you with us. Before we get started, here are some reminders for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Throughout this forum, you can access program information and resources on the same website through which you registered. We'll send that link to you through the chat box. If you'd like to submit questions, and we hope you do, please do so via the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation so we can learn a little bit about who's tuned in today. Last and not least, if there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite Jennifer Marshall, the Heritage Foundation's Senior Visiting Fellow in Domestic Policy Studies to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the second session of our 2020 Heritage Anti-Poverty Forum. During this session, we're going to highlight the important efforts of practitioners working directly with those in need. One of the leading champions of this kind of good neighbor work has been the World News Group. Publishers of World Magazine and publishers of the podcast, The World and Everything in It. And specifically, their Hope Award for Effective Compassion has been a showcase of wonderful good neighbor work across our country. This is the 15th year of the World Hope Award. And last week, I had a chance to catch up with Marvin Olasky, World's Editor-in-Chief. Marvin is a longtime journalist who has dedicated much of his career to promoting effective compassion. He's the author of the book, The Tragedy of American Compassion. And here's my recent conversation with him about the Hope Award. Welcome, Marvin. It's great to see you. Oh, good to see you, Jennifer. We have always been pleased as a part of our anti-poverty forum at the Heritage Foundation to have World's Hope Award for Effective Compassion be a part of our project. And this year, um, I'd particularly like to ask you to reflect on why World started an award dedicated to effective compassion and what you mean by that term. Well, remember Otis Redding singing, she may be weary, so try a little tenderness. We, we thought of all the compassionate people who toil year after year. How could we bolster them? How can we draw attention to programs that can be replicated in other parts of the country? We, we emphasize effective compassion because we want people to escape poverty not merely stay in it. So we look for neighborhood programs that help people alienated from their families, their communities, their work. We, we wanna reunite them with what's good and not just support programs that make the giver feel good. Effectiveness needs to be measured by its fruits. Yeah, you've done a great job of that. And now you've reached the milestone of 15 years of doing this. What can you look back on and say, these are some of the things that stand out, maybe the ministries or the ministry principles that we ought to be looking to and learning from? We still look for programs that are challenging, personal and spiritual. That's our formula. We've used it for a long time. CPS for short, like, like CPR. The good programs can revive those who are mostly dead. We try to avoid top-down programs that rely on experts parachuting in. And we look for bottom-up programs. Um, it's an organic process. They, they often start with people who read the Bible and start thinking, gee, I can do something. They often blunder at first. They sometimes create dependency, but then they rethink, 
they do better because they operate at, at suite level, um, at street level, not suite level. And they know their neighborhoods. I, you know, I remember a Philadelphia guy who was muscle for a loan shark. He became a Christian during his five years in prison. He started Rock Ministries with a connection both to Rocky Balboa and to Jesus as the Rock. Um, another one of my favorite, my favorite ones, there's a, there's a couple in Atlanta who fixed a little girl's bicycle. One thing led to another, and now Bearings Bike Shop trains kids in repair work. So lots of good things. The key is organic, not parachuting in, coming from the bottom up, challenging, personal, spiritual. Great. This year of COVID has been particularly challenging and for ministries among others. Are there uh, standouts, issues that you uh, can look back on this year and want to highlight for us? Yeah, um, some of the same groups that always face difficulties have it worse this year. Uh, refugees need to become part of their new community, but social distancing leaves them even more unpopular. People worry about COVID transmission. So one of our HOPE Awards went to Refugee HOPE Partners, Raleigh, North Carolina. Another went to the El Shaddai Refugee Learning Center in Klang, Malaysia. Uh, shelters are COVID spreaders, so I like villages of tiny houses. Uh, Opportunity Village in South Carolina uh, community village right here in Austin, Texas. People can learn about those programs, other good programs by going to our uh, www.world.wng for World News Group, World WNG website. Well, Marvin, thank you for your work over the years to highlight effective compassion for World's Hope Award to that effect. And we look forward to continuing to highlight the good work with you. Thanks, Marvin. Thank you. Well, one of the reasons that we host the Anti-Poverty Forum at the Heritage Foundation is to be able to lift up local examples and the personalization of what these organizations are able to offer can't be mass produced across the country, but it can be inspirationally reproduced. And that's what the World Hope Award has done. It has raised up and showcased uh, these kinds of organizations across our country that are doing wonderful work, being extraordinary neighbors and helping those in need. You'll find more about the, the World News Group's uh, resources and the Hope Award for Effective Compassion on the tab named resources for this event. Uh, we do hope you'll look that up and we hope that many will be inspired by the kinds of examples we see uh, through the Hope Award for Effective Compassion. One such example is uh, my next guest, and I'd like to ask Reverend Andy Bales to join me on screen. Reverend Andy Bales is the CEO of Union Rescue Mission in Skid Row in Los Angeles, and he brings decades of experience in community service and outreach to that role. So welcome, Andy. It's great to see you. Thank you, Jennifer. So delighted you would take the time to be with us today. Um, well, I want to begin, we're going to take a look at your individual ministry, but you're also, uh, you've, you've watched the situation surrounding homelessness across the country for a lot of years. So I want to ask you some questions to take a national perspective and a policy perspective as well. And we have heard so much in the last year, particularly about homelessness. Uh, I want to ask you to help us understand what's really going on on the ground uh, with this eyewitness perspective that you have. Uh, where is homelessness occurring? Where is it getting worse? And why is it getting worse in those areas? 
well, I believe homelessness is really happening everywhere, but it is skyrocketing exponentially in large cities that have taken, I guess some would call it progressive steps. Uh, some would call it democracy, but I would call it abdication of responsibility. Um, there has been a movement toward uh, focusing all the resources on a few in very expensive permanent supportive housing and away from the many. Uh, and so what we've done is focused all the resources on a few and left thousands upon thousands on the streets. And in that permanent supportive housing, we've, we've moved to uh, a harm reduction model, which allows alcohol and drugs to flow freely. And uh, we have four people per day dying on the streets of LA, uh, not much fewer are dying in San Francisco. Four people per day are dying on the streets of Los Angeles from complications of homelessness and addiction overdoses leading the way. Heart issues are number two and hit and run by a vehicle and left behind to die is number three. And so I call it a total abdication of responsibility. Wow. Well, our mutual friend, Chris Rufo, uh, a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a documentarian, has actually produced a film that takes a very vivid and, and hard look at the situation in one of these cities. Well, I'd like to roll just a bit of the video from that um, now. It's about a 30 second clip. San Francisco is falling apart. Tents, drugs, trash and overdoses are everywhere. The city is home to more than 18,000 homeless, including 4,000 who suffer from homelessness, addiction, and mental illness simultaneously. The city government spends more than $1 billion a year on homelessness, but it's worse than ever. I'm here to find out what happened. I want to know how one of the world's richest cities turned out like this. It's a hard subject. Um... And he's taking a look, at, of course, at San Francisco, one city. Uh, you're in Los Angeles, Skid Row. Uh, you've been working in uh, on the front lines of fighting homelessness for decades now. What have you seen change over that time? Uh, how is government policy affecting you uh, in, in this time? Well, I saw it coming 10 years ago, and I cried out then that no... Uh, mm -hmm. Permanent supportive housing alone is not the single silver bullet to end homelessness. We need a multiple uh, approach, a multiple pronged approach to uh, to homelessness. And I even took issue with Marvin as he said, uh, uh, "Shelters are only spreaders." Well, no, not not with uh, proper social distance and precaution. Uh, we still need shelters. We still need um, a place for people to immediately go but what has happened is hud and our city and our state and our county and our federal government everybody has caught on to this one silver bullet approach and i used to say that perfect has gotten in the way of good like i know everybody wants a very nice unit with a granite countertop uh, but when you take that approach perhaps over the next 10 years we can apply uh, we can provide 5200 units but for that same amount of money, the same exact amount of money, uh, I could provide 156,000 beds in brand new three bedroom mobile homes. So perfect has gotten in the way of good, but the perfect is imperfect. Uh, perfect has allowed alcohol and drugs to flow freely 
and addiction to rain, uh, gang, drug gangs to rain and addiction to rain. And we can't even, when we have somebody recover, uh, go through our recovery program and graduate, they don't even have a place to move that is safe and free from alcohol and drug use. So we've, we've turned the addressing of the homeless situation into an absolute disaster. Uh, I would call it criminal uh, um, negligent homicide because four people per day are dying of complications of homelessness and all of that could be avoided with a different approach of immediate shelter, innovative housing like tiny homes as Marvin said or or mobile homes or container homes or uh, pallet homes or or uh, concrete 3D printed homes that you could put up in 24 to 48 hours at $10,000 a piece. We could, we could have taken a whole different approach that would have absolutely saved lives, but we've got away from all kinds of, of any sensibility. And uh, uh, Robert Marbutt and, and the crew in, in Washington recently proposed a return to sensibilities. But the problem is that was about one month ago after four years in, uh, in the White House. And now, um, how long will that new approach back to sensibility last with the, with a changeover in the administration? I'm, I'm concerned because uh, from 2015 to 2019, uh, street homelessness skyrocketed by 20%. Street homeless, same time, street homelessness in California skyrocketed by 47% because of the movement to permanent supportive housing harm reduction and the movement away from transitional housing and shelters and recovery programs and faith-based recovery. Uh, I believe that when people are allowed to work and pay part of their own way, uh, that their little bit of an addition helps with the sustainability, but more than that, it helps motivate them to, to uh, share responsibility, to affirm their dignity, People feel good when they work and pay part of their own way. We've taken away the opportunity for people to solve their own problems. And certainly the model that we have going on right now in our country and in our states and in our county and our city is not a sustainable plan. Um, we had Measure H and Measure HHH, about $1.3 billion each that was just given away. It was given away never to be returned or recovered, if we would have made one small adjustment with me Measure HHH, if it could have been a forgivable loan or even a uh, low interest loan, I think it would have mitigated the huge costs of 531000 to 749000 per unit with granite countertops, and it would have made the developers think differently, like, I've got to pay this back, so I'd better think more innovatively, like maybe mobile homes where actually the person devastated by homelessness could have a chance at paying it back with their own income or their own income from working. And if it would have been a loan, a low interest loan, it could have actually been forever sustainable. I just wanted to read one uh, scripture uh, from Ecclesiastes. So I, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man or a woman should rejoice in their work, for that is their lot. There's nothing better than somebody paying uh, working and paying their own way. We have a program here where people pay part of their way, $5 a day. It's about $50 cost per day to care for someone. 
But even that little bit of opportunity for somebody to pay $5 a day and save $2 a day in personal savings, there is ownership, there is an affirming of their dignity, uh, there is a feeling of ownership. And uh, since we made that change with our guest area, we've had four to 900 people a year moving into housing with just that minor change. It's really incredible what's happened. Thank you for emphasizing that importance of work, that these are keys to human dignity and ones that we try to uh, emphasize often in our anti-poverty and welfare reform work at the Heritage Foundation, that finding that purposeful direction through uh, meaningful work is critical to human dignity. The significance of the family and marriage uh, is in a critical pillar as well of anti-poverty work and rebuilding relationships. And of course, uh, the absence of work, the absence of relationships are uh, characteristic of homelessness in particular as well. well. You've been referring to challenges at both the local and states and, and federal levels. The federal policy that's pointed the wrong direction is called Housing First. I wonder if you could just briefly summarize, you've already touched on it, but just kind of encapsulate for folks what that the direction of the Housing First federal program is. Yeah, I'd like to better describe it as Housing First and Only, which often means permanent supportive housing with the harm reduction model. It's good to understand all of that. I mean, Housing First with some level of sobriety uh, wouldn't be as bad. Housing first with uh, some level of uh, expectation on the on the guests. I, I used to say if we had a, hundred, a thousand places where somebody could go and crash in any condition, uh, they, there would be a, a thousand people crashing any condition. But if there's a place to go where a thousand people could uh, be empowered to escape uh, addiction and pay for their own way a little bit, uh, we could have a thousand people you know, being empowered, it's the way you approach it. And the Housing First movement has said, everybody deserves a roof of their own uh, immediately, a house of their own. And in Los Angeles, it's the extreme version. I mean, it's like, you can't dare open a shelter without being attacked by this Housing First group. You can't dare place somebody in a, a brand new mobile home because they deserve a wonderful, brand new unit with a granite countertop and anything short of that is is not uh, affirming their humanity. But what we've done is we've poured so many resources on a few and and not had any expectations. And we've left 50,000 people on the streets of Los Angeles to be completely overwhelmingly devastated by homelessness, which brings upon mental illness, which brings about uh, uh, addiction because people are escaping through drugs to either treat their mental illness now or uh, or escape the hellish reality that we've left them in. And then we blame those 50,000 who are on the streets for being mentally ill and addicted. But all we needed to do was to have a sensible approach where you provide a FEMA-like response to those who fall on the streets. I know from personal experience, I couldn't make it more than 24 hours. I stay once a year, New Year's Eve, I stay on the streets. I am absolutely ruined uh, that morning that I go home and, and crash into bed. If I stayed one more night, I would be totally destroyed by homelessness. And yet we do that with 50, 
thousand people, and it's because we have taken that. I don't know what I don't know what causes it. Are we just trying to obscure people's addictions by putting them in a lonely apartment where alcohol and drugs can flow freely? Do we only try to help a few and leaving the rest to die on the streets? Shame on us if if that's the case. But we need a much more sensible approach, like is contained in the latest. Um, uh, uh, United States Interagency Council on Homelessness uh, booklet that just came out uh, that takes a, a, a wide approach. Mental health uh, care for mental mentally ill people, uh, work programs for those who can work, shelter for those who can quickly shelter and bounce back, uh, include faith-based groups. I, I, I need to tell you the truth about what happened. Uh, President Trump and Ben Carson saw Dr. Drew Pinsky and I giving a tour of Skid Row. Uh, they decided to visit first four people from the White House, then 15 people from the White House went on a tour with me. There was talk of giving us federal land for the Dream Center and the Salvation Army and Union Rescue Mission and quickly putting up sprung structures like are in our back parking lot for ours is, uh, was for 120 women. Uh, but there was all kinds of talk to help us. But in the end, they gave $2.6 billion to our current system here in L.A., uh, LASA, the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, to the city and the county, and, and and into that harm reduction model where alcohol and drugs flow freely. And I learned that it was be, not so much the White House, but it was because our city and county, except for one county supervisor, said, if we give any of this HUD money to any faith-based group, that group is going to have to de-faith. I hope you hear me clearly. That group is going to have to de faith and pretty much that means de-recovery in order to receive that money. In fact, we got a letter that said we could get a free pass on a conditional use permit building a new building for families if we promise not to intervene at all in alcohol and drug addiction. That is the current policy going on and it's removed faith-based groups from from being able to carry out their work. And people have the greatest success and recovery and life transformation in the faith-based programs that are available throughout our country. Um, faith-based groups have a high expectation. Uh, we see people on the streets devastated by homelessness and we see them rising up and being brand new creatures. We, I know the world won't ever think that way, but at least give some of the resources to the groups that think that way and have that happen. 25% of our staff at Union Rescue Mission are former guests, former people devastated by homelessness that are now thriving and very successful. Why not give groups like Union Rescue Mission, Salvation Army, the Dream Center um, more resources to make a huge difference in our society? I know it's a it's a wild expectation and perhaps we'll always have to only take private money. And I can tell you, we will never lose our faith. We wouldn't trade our faith for $2.6 billion. We wouldn't trade our faith and the ability to transform lives through the power of uh, Jesus Christ for any amount of money. Amen. It's the identity that animates you to serve in the first place and makes you so powerful in your witness and, and effectiveness. So we're grateful for that. And it's one more reason that we need to preserve religious liberties for the good ministries that are uh, being good Samaritans and helping neighbors in need. 
that's critical to to the flourishing of our, our communities and our country. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you just more personally um, about your motivation in this. And, and you really, uh, you know, you said you spend one night a year on the streets, but you've also experienced this uh, affect your health. Uh, can you give us a little more background about your personal engagement here? Yes. Yeah, so I do this work should have naturally done this work because my own dad was homeless between the ages of four and 17. And his last week on the face of the earth, all he could talk about was the devastation and pain and embarrassment and shame of being that shelter kid or that homeless kid uh, when he went to, went to school and everything that goes with that. Imagine a whole lifetime lived afterwards and a successful life, but all that was on his mind his last week was that time in his life Um, But then it took a faith moment of me uh, after preaching a message about six times from Matthew 25 and the need to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. I preached that message six times in in a class to try to change the kids attitudes and to care about those who were who were the least, I guess, the, the losers of the world. After preaching that six times, a man approached me at my parking lot job on the weekend. I taught school all week, worked at the parking ramp on the weekend. And uh, a man approached me for my sandwich right after I preached that message. And I unfortunately uh, turned him away and quickly realized that I had failed to practice what I had preached. I hoped for another chance and found him on the street. A few weeks later, I was asked if I wanted to work at a downtown rescue mission. I saw it as a chance to practice what I preached. And for the last 34 years, I've been trying to practice uh, what I preached uh, uh, here at Union Rescue Mission as well as in Des Moines, Iowa for a while. And that moment changed my life. I mean, I went from looking through people who uh, were digging out of a dumpster and seeing them as invisible. I went from from not feeling any of their pain to being totally haunted by the thought of one single human being uh, being on the streets. Imagine being haunted by homelessness in a city where we leave 50,000 people on the streets. But uh, you referred to it. Um, I lost my leg on the streets. Since I came to the mission, I've had a heart attack. I've had kidney failure. I had heart failure and kidney failure at the same time. I had a quadruple bypass and then a kidney transplant. And then recovering from the, uh, recovering from the kidney uh, transplant, I uh, got a blister. The blister turned into a wound. The wound was almost healed, but then I ran into uh, some human waste on the streets of skid row with my wound boot and uh, contacted my wound and i got a uh, horrible infection fever blood poisoning spent some days in the hospital uh, but i i contracted uh, e coli staph and strep flesh-eating disease and lost my right leg uh, which actually i viewed as an advantage when i'm in a wheelchair nobody confuses me for a police officer there's no there's no fear or intimidation at all when I roll up to people doing whatever it is and reach out to them and share share God's love with them. And it actually spurred on our city to declare a state of emergency. I was just reading about that uh, in 2018. They declared a state of emergency and the city councilman called me and he said, Andy, we had to do something. Uh, he said, uh, excuse my language, but he said, if Andy Bales can't frickin' walk down the street and preach the gospel, we had to do something. So. I'd give up. I'd give up more than my leg if LA would actually wake up and take some sensible action and and make a way for all 
human beings to uh, escape the streets and certainly to stop all the horrendous death that's happening on our streets because of our bad policy. Well, we thank you for your sacrifices in the love of neighbor and uh, giving of yourself uh, at some cost. I want to turn now to the really great questions that we're getting from our audience. Uh, first of all, a question about mental health and homelessness and asking your insights about how that, how that can be ameliorated. Yeah, so first of all, it's a little confusing about, I know some people are mentally ill, um, I'm dealing with one right now, who their path in their care home is leading them to homelessness. There's no doubt about it, that mental health leads some people to the streets. And when we, when we empty uh, our care homes and other places of people that need more help, uh, we are causing homelessness. But I can guarantee you, that much of the mental health issues comes from not having an immediate place to go. As I said, more than 48 hours will probably do someone in. Um, uh, Jamie Foxx did The Soloist, and to do it, he stayed on the streets for several weeks uh, on the streets of Los Angeles, Skid Row. He is still forever impacted by that stay on the streets. He would tell you he's forever impacted. Much of our mental health issues come from leaving people on the streets. For a woman, it, it's quite likely that a, a day on the streets will lead to not one rape, but many rapes. For a man, it, it's likely to lead to a knock in the head uh, and head trauma and perhaps brain damage and then getting robbed. Um, leaving somebody on the street devastates them in every way, psychologically, physically, mentally, uh, economically, vocationally. Uh, that's one cause of mental health. And then the addiction. People use drugs to escape either their mental health issues, to, to medicate their own mental health issues, or to escape uh, the hell on earth that homelessness is. I'll give, you, I'll give you an illustration. Spice hit big. People were overdosing on spice here on Skid Row. They were trading reality for a uh, hit on a maybe 50 cent uh, dose of spice that caused them to have um, uh, convulsions and end up in ER for six hours. And they knew it, but they still were addicted to spice and using spice despite the consequences because it was a, an escape. And now you have the cartels pouring out cheap meth through the gangs on Skid Row to the, the people addicted. So, so high up people are preying on the addicted. And I get in trouble for demonizing gang members and cartels. Uh, activists attack me. Uh, the other day, uh, uh, NBC News guy called me and told me he's, he's getting threatened, threatened by activists, uh, supposedly humane activists who are telling him they're gonna break his skull with a brick because he reported on some of this. Uh, and I said, well, immediately you can disqualify them as humane activists if they're threatening to, to, to bust you in the head with a brick. But that's the kind of reaction we get. Our world is so upside down uh, that, that those who stand up for the, the people who are being used as prey on the streets are uh, attacked by activists and, and uh, it's just an upside down world that we're trying to make a difference in. 
Well, uh, we have another uh, uh, another question from the audience asking about what can be done on the faith-based angle. And let me just point to a couple of resources at the Heritage Foundation. The DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation is particularly following uh, religious liberty issues and how they might undermine the efforts of those like Reverend Andy Bales and the Union Rescue Mission to be able to serve with such effectiveness uh, in the love of neighbor. Uh, so I would follow the DeVos Center and uh, also our Daily Signal at the Heritage Foundation, which covers quite a few of these kinds of stories to let you know what kind of policies are uh, implicated here and what can be done to reform policy to protect religious liberty. Andy, let me ask you one thing, uh, a, a final question here, and that is, um, is what should we do uh, when we meet a homeless person? What should we do for the person and what should we do in terms of uh, speaking to policy and policymakers about it? Yeah, I, I would encourage people to treat everyone you meet with the love of God, uh, with humanity. Look them in the eyes and treat them like you would somebody at a professional conference. Uh, you know, we all show up at professional conferences. We look people in our eye, in their eyes. We put on our best appearances. That's what that person devastated by homelessness in your neighborhood needs from you. Uh, they may ask for money. They may ask for lots of things. I always say, look them in the eyes, treat them with great respect, and give them what they need. If they ask you for a sandwich and you're able and you feel safe and you have maybe someone with you, take them out for lunch and hear their story and connect them if you can it's almost impossible in los angeles and other big cities it's almost impossible to connect them with services but do all you can uh, i told one church group they said we have a guy drunk on the corner we're going to church he's always asking for money we're thinking about getting him an apartment and a job driving a a, a bus and i said well hang on um, why don't you welcome him to church why don't you send him to our recovery program, bring him all the uh, year's supply of coffee and walk with him as he goes through our program. And I got to tell you, the church listened. They brought him into our recovery program. He graduated. He went back to church. He, he got baptized at the church. And it was a bigger celebration for the church than it even was uh, for my buddy Mo. Um, that's what, what people should do. I wouldn't give them money. I would connect, I would give them food, what they're asking for, and connect them uh, with services and a relationship. Have a, as Marvin said, it's all about having a relationship uh, with somebody. As far as policymakers, please, I don't know what's going to happen in the next administration, but I'm hoping there will be some sensibility left. Cry out for not leaving people on the streets to be devastated by homelessness. Don't sacrifice four people, precious souls made in the image of God, dying on the streets while waiting for slow to develop, very expensive housing where alcohol and drugs are gonna flow freely. Uh, ask for immediate shelter and care, ask for jobs programs that people can climb out of poverty, ask for recovery. We, we have to return to some, the pendulum's gotta swing back to recovery and away from addiction or our not only a generation is going to be lost, our society is going to be lost if we don't make a change and swing back to recovery. So cry out to your, your uh, politicians 
if they don't hear from you, it's just going to continue to to disintegrate. Well, this conversation has really illustrated in the context of homelessness how important it is to focus on recovery, as you said, in these private efforts like yours and for government policy to reinforce that, not undermine it, as it is uh, fairly actively doing in some cases right now uh, by providing housing without help rather than housing that's oriented towards recovery. And no matter where the addiction comes from, the mental health comes from, whether it's prior or after, these are the biggest obstacles for climbing out of poverty and homelessness, overcoming addiction. But, but the policy right now says it's just part of their life. So don't even intervene. It's just part of, well, it can't be part of their life. They'll never escape homelessness or they'll never escape dependence on our government. Very expensive dependence on our government if they continue in their addiction. And, and the death rate is sky high in these very lonely uh, apartments where alcohol and drugs flows freely. Well, federal policy for the last half century when directed against poverty has encouraged us to think about it as a merely material problem and that merely material resources could solve the problem of poverty. And of course, What's lost often in that is the much more complex human problems, the ones that are entangled in our sense of identity and well-being, uh, those of addiction and mental illness and relational breakdown. Uh, so you've really illustrated for us the importance of that restoring of relational approach to a private charitable effort uh, and the way that we could redirect policy to reinforce that, not undermine it. Andy Bales, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and even more than that, for your everyday work uh, in, in shining a light in a place that seems so hopeless often. Thanks for giving us a sense of hope for what can be done. Thank you. Well, as, we, uh, as it's clear from this conversation with Andy, there's much to be done on the policy front to allow good work to go forward and to encourage the steps that will lead to overcoming poverty. To address these policy aspects, I'd like to introduce Leslie Ford. She's a visiting fellow in domestic policy studies at the Heritage Foundation. She's previously worked on welfare and anti-poverty issues at the White House and on Capitol Hill. Leslie and I chatted last week about where policy stands in some of the major anti-poverty programs after this pandemic year and where we should be looking in the future. Join me as we listen to this conversation. Hi, Leslie, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, this has been a year with a lot of policy action on anti-poverty welfare issues because of COVID-19, of course, and the pandemic. And I want to ask you about that. But in order to get the context for that discussion, I actually want to ask you first to reflect on the last several years of reforms and highlight what has gone on in those last couple of years. Yeah, I think that's very important, especially when we're in this COVID environment. So I think it's great to start out by pointing out that in 2017, President Trump signed an executive order uh, reducing poverty in America by promoting economic opportunity. And that EO really kicked off a lot of administrative actions and a lot of working with the Hill to promote economic mobility. Um, on the Hill, I'd point out the tax reform bill that opened up the opportunity zones, and those are on the ground, and those have continued throughout COVID, which is great. 
Um, but it also kicked off a lot of administrative actions, particularly in SNAP and TANF and Medicaid, with the focus being, let's look at fraud, let's look at work expectations so that those who are capable of work are expected to work. I'll point out two in the SNAP program. Uh, the first one would be the able-bodied adults without dependents rule that was finalized last year. This says if you're between the ages of 19 and basically 50, that if you are work capable, you're not disabled, you don't have a kid in the home, that we're going to ask you to work or look for work 20 hours a week. Now with COVID, this has been put on pause. It would have been put on pause in any case because of those spiking unemployment rates. But it's just an example of work expectations in reality. Another one is the proposed BBCE rule. This is, I'm pretty sure most people know what this is, but it's broad-based categorical eligibility. There was a loophole in the SNAP program that most states allowed individuals to completely bypass the asset test. And this allowed millionaires to own the program. So this was just a proposed rule in the Trump administration, but it's an example of we should ensure that these programs are there for the most vulnerable. Um, and we should ensure that all of our funds are directed towards that outcome. So those are just some of the examples of the good work that had been happening over the past four years. I'd like to end with just pointing out that the economy was probably the best um, functioning thing for low-income Americans. At the end of 2019, the bottom quarter of Americans saw real median income increase 4.5%. That's incredible. That hadn't happened in decades. Um, when we're talking about bringing people off the sidelines and into the workforce and reducing marginal tax rates, a great economy is the best path forward. Great. Well, COVID-19 and a year of pandemic brought changes, emergency measures uh, that were required to respond to it. Can you tell us a little bit, summarize what went on in that regard? Interesting year, but the, um, economically, especially with regard to low-income Americans, because as basically every state or 45 states shut down their economies, low-income Americans are definitely, or were definitely hit the hardest. Uh, Congress immediately responded. The administration worked with Congress to respond and those measures were temporary and they're targeted to the pandemic, which is really what's important to remember here, that these aren't year long measures. These aren't permanent measures. They were to say, okay, what, do we need to do to respond and how do we get the economy back going once we do respond? I'll point out three. The first was the unemployment insurance bonus. This is a $600 a week cash bonus in addition to what states already provide people who are on the sidelines due to unemployment. It was temporarily targeted. It went away at the end of July. President Trump temporarily extended it with three to $400 a week for a couple months if states wanted to opt into that, which a lot of states did. Um, so that was a cash benefit. Uh, Congress also looked to the Medicaid program to ensure that people who lost their health insurance due to unemployment were able to have somewhere to turn to. And they did that in a variety of ways. They increased the federal match for states so states were able to properly respond. They ensured that that $600 bonus I just talked about wasn't, wouldn't prevent people from qualifying for Medicaid if they didn't have anywhere else to turn. They also uh, did something called the maintenance of effort, that if a state accepted that federal match, that they wouldn't be able to take anyone off the program. And that resulted in, CBO says, about 4.5 million individuals who wouldn't otherwise qualify for Medicaid staying on the program over the next year. Um, so that's a 
large expansion of the Medicaid program. But again, temporary and targeted to the public health emergency. Uh, finally, just pointing out in the SNAP program, uh, Congress brought everyone who's on the program to the maximal, maximum percentage that they could get. So on average, we're looking at before the pandemic, an average family of five would receive about $500, $530 a month in SNAP benefits, and that would increase to between $700 and $800 a month. So a significant percentage there. And also they would add anything that a family would receive through school lunch and school breakfast, they would add that to the family's EBT card. And that provision has continued through this school year, through, I believe it's the end of next year. So. All of those temporary and targeted to the pandemic. If schools are closed, for instance, uh, you get that EBT bonus. Well, let me turn then to asking you now that we're at the end of 2020, looking ahead to 2021, what are going to be the most important things for us to think about uh, in terms of welfare reform and anti-poverty policy? I think it's absolutely essential to look back to those principles. We want people to be entering into the economy. That really is the pathway out of poverty. Now, there's been incredible work done over the past few years, even with uh, a gridlock between the executive branch and the congressional branch. For instance, the Joint Economic Committee in the Senate, uh, headed up by Senator Lee and under Scott Winship's uh, leadership on the ground, did incredible work on what are the causes that we're really looking at. They looked at work, they looked at marriage rates, they looked at loneliness. They said, what's really happening with low-income Americans? And I'd point out that the Republican Study Committee on the House side has done incredible work putting policy solutions to a lot of these principles. What does it mean for, what does EATC reform mean in practicality? And I hope a lot of that work is going to continue over the next two years. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for giving us this overview, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk it through with us today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Compassion for those in need is critical, and as important is that our compassion be effective. And so our Heritage Anti-Poverty Forum is dedicated to bringing together policymakers and practitioners who are directly serving those in need who are concerned with finding and remembering the human being at the center of these questions, remembering the nature of the need and what can be done to help restore dignity. We've emphasized the importance of work, we've emphasized the importance of marriage and the importance of organization on the ground level, particularly faith-based organizations to be able to serve neighbors in need. All of these need to be surrounded by good policy uh, if they're to be successful in their work. So please continue to join us. We'll be having this session again next year and we look forward to a community of those working in the policy and practice uh, of good, effective compassion to help those in need. I want to welcome uh, you to use the resources tab to find more information about the kinds of topics we've discussed here. And you can uh, contact those who have been involved in our recording today uh, and our live event today with the addresses on your screen. Uh, please go to heritage.org slash events to find out more of the events that we sponsor here and to view the archive of this event. Uh, 24 hours from now. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.